Hi there, my name is Liam West and I'm a junior doctor in the Oxfordshire Deanery. I'm also a senior associate editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine, which is run through the BMJ. On today's podcast, our guests are Osman Ahmed, an experienced musculoskeletal physiotherapist that splits his time between working within the NHS and also various England disability football teams. Alongside him, I have Jordan Rains, who is currently the goalkeeper for the Cerebral Palsy England football team. So welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. So today we're going to discuss various points within cerebral palsy football and the medical provision associated with the sport. So firstly, if one of you could run us through the classifications in CP football and their respective disabilities. Okay, well the classifications in CP football are designed to try and make it an even playing field between all the different international football teams. And the classifications are done by a doctor, a physiotherapist and a sports technician. The four main categories in cerebral palsy football are five, six, seven and eight and players are given a class um, which reflect their ability that fits into either one of those classes. Now the class five is generally a diplegic or double hemis and they're mainly affected in both legs. Um, Class sixes will be affected in all four limbs and they'll have ataxia and athetosis. Class sevens will be affected in one arm and one leg on the same side and they'll be hemiplegic and class eights are going to be mildly affected um, in all four limbs. So they're the main four classifications of that. Okay, so that's really interesting, and we can put up some of the uh, descriptions of some of those terms for people to read in their own time. Um, So with these classifications, as you've mentioned, they've all got different disabilities. Do players actually move between classifications, or do they always stay within one classification for the rest of their career? No, players definitely can change between the classifications. Um, Sometimes the changes are age-related, so um, there may be progress of their neurological state, which means that they become either less or more impaired over time, and that obviously changes to their classifications. Um, Sometimes countries are able to protest decisions that they feel have been awarded incorrectly, Um, so that's another case where players' classifications can change. Um, Human error is present, unfortunately, because the system isn't always perfect, um, so there are changes through classification related to that. Okay, and it sounds like a quite a stressful situation. Jordan, can you take us through what classification you are and then I'm, what it's a bit like to be classified? I'm a class five. Um, I'm, quite for, I'm quite fortunate in effect, um, whereas um, I'm quite easy to classify. Um, but I've been at tournaments, tournaments before where, where players are very much borderline. And um, I'm a class five, but, but in other, in other effect, um, I'm, I'm, it's quite evident that I'm a class five, but with other... In the past, we've had um, variations where you never know if someone's a five or an eight, just because of the of the level of disability, mm. um, which obviously and, and the difference between um, with a ruling, you can only play you can play as many fives as you want. You need to play one five, but you can play as many fives as you want, but you, you can only play one eight. So that, that that obviously has an impact on 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 the team you can play and on which which players can you can play. I mean, one of the things that struck me when I first came into the sport is a variance between um, some of the players that you get in each class. So, for example, Jordan is a goalkeeper and his mobility is fairly limited in some respects, but there are other cl- some class fives that are really, really mobile um, and they're able to bomb up and down the pitch. So within each class, even though players are similar in nature to a lot of extent, there are also quite big differences between them. So I, I see how potentially there's a lot of tactical room for the coaches there and and I guess with the classification you might be hoping that someone may be classified a little bit lower because you were coming on I think if you get I think because you rate the most mobile players so sometimes you effectively you rate one might the other rate out of the game and so if you can get a a more mobile lower classification and that obviously gives you uh, gives you more of an advantage in the game okay and if we could briefly go over we've been talking about the numbers 
but just to give our listeners a, a brief idea, Osmond, so how many players are there on a pitch, the size of the pitch, and we'll just quickly go over that. Yep, so Cerebral Palsy Football is a seven-a-side version of the 11-a-side um, game that we all know and love as football. Um, the pitches is smaller, um, the goals are smaller, um, and like I say, seven-a-side, one goalkeeper for each team, um, referee, uh, two linesmen, exactly the same rules in terms of handball. Um, one of the small rule changes is that throw-ins have to be underarm um, rather than overarm. Um, and yeah, as England, we're one of the seven England disability teams, so um, the FA have different disability sides that are um, present and operational at the moment. Um, and every four years we get together as GB, so alongside Scotland and Wales, um, and take part in the Paralympic Games. GB have participated in the last two Paralympic Games, and we've had successive seventh place finishes in Beijing in 2008, where Jordan Range was there, um, yeah. and um, also in London 2012. Superb, and I think a lot of our uh, listeners may well have watched a lot of that and enjoyed it. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the different classifications then, the disabilities. So um, is there any sort of way that you might tailor your medical or rehabilitation inputs to the uh, players of different classifications? Um, and do you have any examples of that? Yeah, I mean, there's some marked differences, really, in terms of the movement patterns of the fives and sixes and the sevens and the eights. Um, the fives and sixes, by nature of their uh, pathology, have quite often got a diplegic gait, quite internally rotated at the hips, um, and they'll struggle to stop, pivot and turn. Um, they'll also have a decreased stride length relative to the other players. Whereas the sevens, because of their hemiplegic gait, they'll quite often walk or run with a limp. Um, they'll have a reduced balance and ability to hop and jump on that side, and they'll have a complete absence sometimes of heel strike. Whereas the eights, they're going to be quite subtle changes that you'll witness in their movement patterns. And all of that means that we have to sort of consider and bear in mind different aspects of that when we come to tailor their treatment and rehabilitation programs. Um, a couple of examples that spring to mind um, are with the Class 7 athletes, so the hemiparesis um, side that's been injured. Um, we had one player who injured his MCL, and whereas we would have taken him through a normal strengthening programme of closed chain exercises, including squats and lunges, because of the position of his foot and the absence of um, heel strike, we weren't really able to do his rehabilitation in that way. Um, so in that instance, we had to adjust it and have a lot of open chain exercises. That's one example that immediately springs to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Another one on a hemiparesis side is TA loading, so Achilles tendon strengthening. So an eccentric loading program is going to be compromised if the individual in normal stance is unable to get the heel on the floor. So that's another example where we have to modify, use things such as TheraBand um, exercises in long sitting um, in order to generate that eccentric load um, whilst doing the concentric dorsiflexion in order to get therapeutic benefit. And Jordan, obviously, uh, recently has injured his shoulder and um, he yeah, probably I, wants to talk I, a bit I about find, that. I find that um, it's, it's more of an injury prevention because um, and because of, of um, the classification I am, I think, to what of a, with quite a poor posture. Um, so we do a lot of Faraband stuff just to help strengthen the area of the shoulders um, and help support my posture when I, when I play. Um, so if I do that three or four times a week, it will... Um, it helps me posture, um, and then when I hyperextend to make saves in goal, hopefully I won't, I won't have any tears like I've had in the past um, with shoulders and stuff, which also prevents me prevents me from having things like operations, and, mm-hmm. and also helps with just general quality of life, really. Yeah, so I guess the difference between yourself as a uh, CP football and the mainstream football is your injury prevention isn't just to stop you having injuries actually like you said the quality of life of and actually trying to bring you back to what I guess society would call normal values of and stuff I think more because um, I've been involved with the team for seven years um, the, the the adaptations I have to make compared to everybody football I've probably well, I've, I've definitely increased as I've, as I've got a little bit older um, 
and because I've picked up little injuries with um, and because like I was saying with the running gait and little groin injuries and shoulder injuries with my posture, I just need to keep on top of things. If that means maybe playing, playing twice, once or twice a week rather than three or four times a week, I'll do that. And also just taking that bit of extra time to, to have things like sports massage that can help, to do uh, ferroban exercise, extra, extra stretches uh, before games. Um, it just gives you that little bit of an extra extra percentage to to go out and and, and feel like you're not going to break down, which, which is important for any player. Yeah, I think you touched on there quite well. The stretching is a core theme here within disability sport, and uh, and coming on to what Osman's saying with the biomechanical sort of structure of the different categories, it actually gives a bit more complexity to the rehab, which is quite interesting and. Hopefully, a lot of our listeners will go away and read about that. Um, so with the rehab, Osman, um, I've done a little bit of reading around Botox and its mm. use in disability sport to try and help with rehab. Can you sort of explain where that might well be used? Yeah, we were very fortunate here um, within the disability squads to be able to welcome Professor Tony Ward from the North Staffordshire Rehabilitation Centre to come and talk to us recently about Botox. And that's where I get a lot of my knowledge and information on the field from. Um, Botox obviously in the celebrity world is used to iron out wrinkles and as Tony Ward mentioned when he came to speak to us um, we try and use Botox therapeutically to iron out training wrinkles Um, so by that he means the abnormal muscle activity that interferes with movement and that abnormal muscle activity in relation to cerebral palsy um, is spasticity and stiffness so by having um, focal injections which are sometimes ultrasound guided that injection of botulinum toxin um, enables the spasticity to be reduced and uh, toned down really so yeah I mean, a lot of our players have had that at a younger age um, Jordan is one of them that's yeah, had that it was in the lower back um, it was, I think it was something that we've been trying was it East Staffordshire so I'm not sure if it's the same doctor but um, it was the, um, for the lower back I had some problems with my um, sciatic nerves just day to day living not so much football and I had that and it the muscle is settled down, so, so hopefully that works. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing with Botox, obviously, it's not a standalone treatment and it's only ever an adjunct um, to the rest of the uh, treatment modalities that will be given out to sort of young individuals with CP. So, from a physiotherapy point of view, that includes splinting, casting, regular stretches, um, in some cases, tendon release, so surgery approaches as well. So, um, so yeah, but in terms of the onset, I mean, it, it's quite quick acting. Um, I think the clinical effect is within three or five days and it has a maximum effect after about a month and a lot of players that have had the Botox seem to um, get followed up every three months um, for top-ups because that's when the effect starts to wane. Mm -hmm. So I I guess to summarise you could see it's sort of a window of opportunity it provides for yourselves as physiotherapists and rehabilitation uh, experts to actually get in and do the work that otherwise with the muscle spasticity that you're saying Jordan and other people may well actually prevent actually that happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and one consideration with that as well is that during the classification process, the international classifiers will always ask the player as part of the pro forma whether they've taken any Botox because um, obviously that will affect the muscle spasticity at that time of classification um, and therefore the muscle spasticity at the time of the classification may not represent a true and accurate reflection of what they're normally like if they've had the Botox. Um, So that's another consideration to be borne into account as to the timing of the Botox um, for any players that are currently in competition and looking to go to an international classification. Okay. Um, Before we move on to quickly a bit of the research behind disability sport, uh, just one quick question. Not all of your players are hereditary cerebrally palsy athletes. Um, Could you you go through sort of 
a few of the reasons that you may get uh, athletes coming in to you that have got cerebral palsy? Yeah, I mean, cerebral palsy football um, and cerebral palsy sport encompasses other neurological conditions that reflect um, a similar presentation to um, acquired cerebral palsy. So these sort of conditions are traumatic brain injury, um, stroke and hereditary spastic diplegia. Um, so anything that masquerades with either unilateral or bilateral um, neurological changes, things that affect things like tone, spasticity, balance, muscle control, ataxia, all of those conditions are included under the umbrella of cerebral palsy football. Mm. So at the moment in the squad, we've got a balance of all of those conditions. Um, we've got a lad with CVA, um, we've got a couple of lads that have had traumatic brain injuries. We've got one uh, player with hereditary spastic diplegia, and there's other players that have all got congenital cerebral palsy, um, like Jordan Reigns. Yeah, and they all bring their own medical sort of complexities that actually the medical team need to also look after as well as them as just performance and athletes and themselves and injuries. Absolutely, and in terms of presentation and uh, movement patterns, we haven't got two players that are identical. And certainly as a clinician working within disability sport, that's one of the attractions is that um, you're constantly having to think on your feet. Um, you're seeing different movement patterns all the time, um, different levels of complexity in terms of rehab programs. So very challenging and rewarding and enjoyable field to work in. Yeah, I'd have to say as a junior, that's probably what drove me towards disability sport is the actual using your brain and your training to work towards it yeah I think I think also from an athlete's point of view it's it's having that and we do we all have the trust in the medical staff to because they've got the knowledge and expertise to to, to guide us in the right way and um, but it's important as well and, and and we've got a very good relationship where where um, the communication is important because what what works for one class five won't work for another class five and that's something that's respected and um, by all the medical staff yeah, as a disabled athlete, Jordan, wh- what would you then, uh, you touched on it briefly there, yeah. what would you expect of your doctor and physiotherapy, uh, physiotherapist, sorry? Well, I'd, I'd expect the expertise on, on the condition. Um, I'd, I'd also expect the, the communication, so the reason behind, behind certain treatments, for example, certain stretches, um, and also the, for the, uh, the physiotherapy side to sort of overlap the strength and conditioning side of things. Um, and it's important that they have... Um, they cross-reference cross each other, um, as well as obviously the football side, which, which is obviously the most important. I can't recommend highly enough for junior physiotherapists that are thinking of working in sports medicine or sports physiotherapy um, to complete their basic grade core rotations in neurology because this is a classic example of movement analysis and gait analysis being an essential core part of your role and I think for um, student physios and junior physios that are hoping to go into sports medicine by getting the basic neurological underpinning of doing your core rotations in neurology I think that's got massive overlap for any domain of sports medicine disabled or able-bodied. Perfect. I think we've uh, covered the clinical aspect there really well there, guys. So I, I guess just to finish up, Osman, if you wouldn't mind, you wrote a really good paper in the BGSM uh, on enhancing performance and in sports injury prevention in disability sport. Can you just briefly summarise the findings there and anything our listeners can take away from that? Yeah, thanks, Liam. I mean, it was with my co-authors, um, so I'd like to give thanks to them. Um, and it was a brief editorial, um, and we really just wanted to talk a little bit about disability football and the fact that um, there's not really a great body of research underpinning um, the area, and it is a emerging area in terms of the numbers that play the game and the fact that there's a lot of really good injury prevention research that's done out there um, and that's been published in 
British Journal of Sports Medicine, so the likes of Caroline Finch and Ava Verhagen, who um, came and presented to us at the FA on injury prevention principles applied to disability football. Um, we did a brief literature search as part of our editorial, and we found that there's very little published data on injury prevention in disability sport and nothing at all on disability football. Um, we also touched upon um, the work that is being done at the FA at the moment in terms of the FA Injury and Illness Surveillance Study, which to our knowledge is um, the most long-term and comprehensive injury research that's been done in disability football to date. Um, we've got one full season's worth of data and we're currently at the start of the second season of collecting data for it. Um, and with any injury prevention program, it's important to get a good epidemiological understanding of the injury patterns that are out there. And hopefully now that we've started to collect some data, we'll be able to identify the injury patterns and therefore better address the injury prevention needs that we have within our different disability squads. Okay, thanks very much. Is there anything else you'd like to say, guys? Yeah, the lads are currently preparing for the um, World Championships, which, which will be held in this country at St George's Park in, in June. Um, June the 16th to the, tw the 28th, um, where we'll welcome 16 of the best thorough palsy nations from around the world to compete over a course of three weeks. And, um, and the English team are, are very hopeful of finish, finishing in a medal position. Perfect. Yep, and the World Championships are a direct qualifier for the Paralympic Games in 2016 in Rio. Um, so if you are in the vicinity, or even not in the vicinity, and want to come along and watch some games at St George's Park in Burton-upon-Trent, we'd love to have you along and support England. Also, in addition, if you do know of anybody with cerebral palsy, or um, identify any players in your clinical practice or private lives with cerebral palsy that are interested in getting into the sport, um, please do contact your local county FA. Perfect. Okay, thanks once again, guys. And um, I'll finish by saying you've been listening to a podcast via the British Journal of Sports Medicine brought to you from the BMJ uh, on cerebral palsy football and the medical service provision associated with this sport. If you'd like to hear more, you can run through the Student BMJ or also the BGSM website and you can follow BGSM on Twitter through at BGSM underscore BMJ. Okay, thanks very much. Have a physically active day. <laughs>